good morning, and would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra 9 is on page uh, 395 in a blue pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. Uh, But we have now arrived at the final week of our series in the book of Ezra, and we'll be finishing with chapters 9 and 10 this morning. And if you, uh, maybe throughout the series, have been trying to read ahead, uh, leading up to the next Sunday and the passage that will be preached, you already know that Ezra has a strange ending. It is among the, if not the strangest endings of any book in the Bible, in that it ends, it finishes by listing the names of over a hundred men who committed a grievous sin. And then the final comment in verse 44, so if you have your Bible open, just kind of maybe Turn the page or look at the next page to the final verse of chapter 10. It says, All these men had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. Period. End of Ezra. Now, in the first week of the series, I mentioned that in many of the, main, uh, many of the ancient manuscripts, Ezra and Nehemiah are actually combined as one book. So it is possible that the author of Ezra, which many hold to be Ezra himself, uh, kind of finished this as like kind of part one, but then went right into Nehemiah 1 as kind of part two of the same book. But if you go to the end of Nehemiah, uh, that ends on a down note as well. And that it leaves us with a sense of emptiness, a, a sense of you get to the end, you're like, it can't end like that. Like, like after all we've invested in this book, all the ups and downs that we've seen, that's going to be the grand finale of Ezra. You know, when it comes to disappointing endings in our culture, you often hear it most, I don't know what this says about us, but you also often hear it most in regards to series finales of popular TV shows, uh, in that there is no shortage of online rankings of the worst endings of all time. The best, worst endings, if you will. And, you know, usually there's some of the same top five shows that you'll find on there. Uh, But the reactions that our culture has to to bad series finales are similar. It's like, after all I've invested in this show, in the characters, and the plot, all the ups and downs over all these years, after all we've been through, that cannot be the ending of that show. And when it comes to TV shows, that kind of is the end. But in Ezra... And by the time, end of our time together this morning, we will find that that feeling of emptiness, uh, that feeling of kind of like wanting more, is actually the whole point. And so as we dig in, I, I just kind of want to say up front, um, the sermon this morning, it's kind of a lot. Um, and I don't mean that in terms of length, I don't think. Um, but I mean it in terms of weight. Ezra 9 and 10 is pretty heavy, and so my prayer for myself all week up till 30 seconds ago is that I will preach clearly uh, this morning and that with a tone that is compassionate, and my prayer for you all through this week is that God would build you up through these two chapters by his Spirit. And so let's set the context of these final chapters. If, if you are just joining us and you're jumping right in, uh, the, the kind of flyover theme of the book of Ezra has been the story of a God who sustains his people through difficult moments. And he does it by reminding them of his promises and, and bringing about a renewed hope. 
And at the beginning of Ezra, that the nation of Israel was still in captivity in Babylon from when they were sent into exile. Uh, but through God's providential work, God decreed through the king of Persia that they would be sent back to their homeland. And the first wave of exiles returned, and although it took them a while, uh, they physically rebuilt the temple. And they celebrated the Passover in Jerusalem for the first time at the finished temple. And that was the end of chapter 6. And then last week, Pastor Joe looked at chapter 7 and 8, which takes place 80 years after the first wave of exiles returned, 60 years after the temple was finished. And this man, Ezra, that we were introduced to, was called by God to lead a second wave of exiles. Uh, a smaller group, but a few thousand at least, uh, a second wave of exiles could go back to Jerusalem, and Ezra would oversee the now spiritual renewal, or the, or the spiritual rebuilding, if you will, of these exiles. And so the, their journey is chronicled in chapter 8 of 900 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem, and that chapter ends with, uh, with their arrival and the beginning of Ezra's ministry, and it's kind of all good up to that point, so it seemed. And now we turn to chapter 9. We're going to start with just verses 1 and 2. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. So that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. There's a lot to unpack in chapters 9 and 10. And we will see it all through the lens of Ezra. Starting with number one, Ezra learns of Israel's sin. Ezra learns of Israel's sin. So after settling in for a few months... Uh, and beginning to teach and hold sacrifices that is uh, spoken about at the end of chapter 8. Now at the beginning of chapter 9, the leaders who have been in Jerusalem come to tell Ezra of a problem. And the problem, as we heard, is stated pretty plainly. Many men within that first wave of exiles have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land, Meaning, they have been taking women from surrounding people groups as their wives and for wives for their sons. Now, the problem of Jewish men marrying foreign women is not an ethnic concern, but a religious one. Have to get this right. Got to make sure we're clear on that. That from the beginning in the days of Moses, God clearly forbade intermarriage meaning marriage to foreign nations, but God's concern through Moses was not inter-ethnic marriage or what we in modern days might call interracial marriage, marrying somebody with a different ethnic background. It's not the concern. The concern was marrying someone with a different God that they worship. We won't turn there, but back in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, roughly a thousand years earlier than this moment, Moses spoke to Israel as Israel had gone through 40 years in the wilderness and they're at the edge of the promised land about to enter in. uh, Moses tells them not to mix with the peoples of the land. Verses 3 and 4 of Deuteronomy 7, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. 
then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. The surrounding nations worshipped different gods than Israel. And you see throughout the Old Testament, as part of their worship practice, they engaged in what Scripture would call detestable, abominable practices that would draw Israel away from him, from the one true God. And by the way, that's exactly what happened. And that's one of the main reasons why Israel was led into exile in the first place. But the problem was not a mixture of skin color, but a mixture of worship. In the Old Testament, we see examples of, of marriage to women with different ethnic backgrounds that is actually celebrated. There's women like Rahab and, and Ruth, and, and their marriages is celebrated because there was a unity of worship even despite the, the difference in ethnic background. But a mixture of worship in the union of marriage would inevitably destroy Israel's identity as God's people. It would, it would impact their pursuit of holiness. It, it would impact their witness to those surrounding nations. And, and, and so the reason why for us today, why clarity matters, really, uh, is really important in this chapter, is because marriage always has been and always will be so vital for the people of God. And there's often so much confusion and pain associated with it. And a lazy reading of this passage along with others in the Old Testament, would say that God does not ordain different ethnicities to marry each other. And that lie has been drawn out and pervasive throughout church history and Western history. Many of you probably know that up until maybe two generations ago, or even a single generation ago, that many states in the United States had laws banning interracial marriage. And those laws were defended in the name of God, that God would never ordain for races to mix. And because that has been so baked into the conscience of this nation for so long, there are still many professing Christians, some would be honest and admit it, others probably would hide it, that they would be adverse to their children marrying somebody with a different ethnic background. And that is a lazy application of this passage. And it's sinful way to handle scripture and hold others under the weight of something like that. The danger is not a mixture of skin color, and it never has been, but it's always been a mixture of worship that has been the danger. And this is why the church does exhort uh, single men and women who desire to be married, or, or if you're a student and maybe one day God will put marriage as a desire of your heart, of why we emphasize the importance of marrying other believers regardless of their skin color. And the reason is because how vital shared worship is in a marriage. That, that, that when you are a Christian, when you are proclaiming to be a Christian, you're proclaiming that you have been transformed by the grace of God and you've put your faith and trust in, in Jesus Christ and that shapes and forms everything about your life. And so to enter into a marriage, a union, a two becoming one, with someone who has not been transformed by that same grace, whose primary allegiance is not to the Lord, who has other gods, whether they call them gods or not, shaping and forming everything about them, that will lead to a lot of struggle in that union. From, from decisions on parenting, 
to generosity and money? How do we spend our money? How, what, what do we prioritize for our time? Your, your commitment to a church, to, to, to friendships. And like, let, let's be honest, man. Marriage is hard when there is shared worship. Amen? Like marriage can be difficult even when you do have the same God. And, and, and when, you, when you now have a disunity of worship, man, that's tough. So, so single brothers and sisters who, who desire to be married, that's not a bad desire. But do not allow that desire to lead you to marry an unbeliever that you think, hey, we'll figure it out later. Or expect that eventually they'll come around. Now, for those who are here, those maybe who are listening, who are currently married to an unbeliever, and you know firsthand some of those struggles, whether you became a believer after getting married, or you did knowingly marry a non-believer, or perhaps you married somebody you thought at the time was a believer. I know that's a question, but what, what should you do? The answer is, is to stay, but, but we're going to come back to that. I, I promise I'm not skirting around this. We're going to come back to that in this passage. But, but for all of us, I want us to see this example of intermarriage in Ezra 9 as a single example of a larger problem for the people of God both then and now. And the larger problem that we all need to see, regardless of your stance or position in marriage, is, 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 is a lack of regard for holiness. That's really the larger problem here. It's a lack of regard for holiness amongst Israel that now that they're back in their homeland. Like, like why did they disobey God's very clear word? The key word is back in verse 2. And the word is faithlessness. That, that their sin that happened to manifest itself in this way uh, emerged from a lack of faith, a lack of believing that God's commands are good for them, that his commands are for their joy, not to rob them of their joy. And all of us, regardless of who we are, have commands in the Bible where we first read it and, and the first response is, is a little, oh, that's hard. That's hard to hear. It's hard to live out. I don't like it. But, but it, this applies to all of God's commands. They are all there for your joy. And in this case, it was particularly evident in God's command towards marriage. And the worst part, you know what the worst part of those first two verses is? It was spoken at the end of verse 2, that the faithlessness was most rampant amongst two, the leaders. Any systemic sin amongst God's people is to be lamented. But when it's a failure at the leadership level, the collateral damage is far worse. The failure of a Christian leader multiplies the impact amongst the people. Which is one of the reasons why James will say in his epistle in the New Testament that leaders will be held to a higher account of judgment before the Lord. That when it's a failure at the leadership level, the collateral damage is far worse. All right, let's keep going. We're going to read a chunk here from verses 3 to 10 before we see number 2. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. 
And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the swords, the captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God. To leave us a remnant, and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but he has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Number two, Ezra repents of Israel's sin. Ezra repents of Israel's sin. Ezra did not come to Jerusalem expecting this. He did not come looking for it. It was freely brought to him by the people in the land. Do you ever wonder why they did that? Why did they come and freely admit this and confess this to Ezra? Uh, is it because Ezra would have figured it out on his own eventually? So they just kind of wanted to preempt it, you know? Maybe. But here's what I think the flow of the text tells us. We saw last week that God called Ezra to teach the people his law. And he equipped Ezra with the ability to do it skillfully. And so I believe that when he came in those first few months at the end of chapter 8, he began to do just that. He faithfully preached the word. And faithful preaching is not rooted in charisma or intellectual ability. Preaching is only faithful in that it illuminates the word. Guys, give me a clear and true preacher who maybe does it in a way that's boring any day of the week over a way that a charismatic teacher that bludgeons the word of God. And when Ezra illuminated the word, the word did what the word does. It cuts like a double-edged sword. The, the word convicts and then it assures. It exposes both the guilt of man and the saving grace of God simultaneously. So perhaps Ezra came and began teaching from the law of Deuteronomy. Maybe he came across chapter 7, where God's commands regarding marriage were made plain, because the same people groups that uh, were listed in verse 1 were the same ones listed in verse 7, even though those groups aren't in the land anymore. But the point is there. And they came forward to that faithful and response to that teaching with a confession. But Ezra's response to their response is really telling. It tells us a lot about Ezra's character and his leadership. Because let me tell you what Ezra does not do. He doesn't hear of this serious sin amongst the people and go, ah, I don't know, we're not going to be perfect, guys. Let's, let's, let's cut our losses and, and move on. So, so don't draw attention to it. In fact, guys, I just started here. This might make me look bad. 
And I don't want to look bad as a leader for things that I didn't do. And my goodness, is that a temptation amongst leaders? Isn't that a failure we see over and over again across the church? To just gloss over sin in the name of the institution? Especially if it's the leaders who are the ones who are guilty? Man, that's going to make everything look real bad. Okay, let's keep this on the down low. Let's, let's try and deal with it, but let's, cut, let's move on. Let's let this blow over. Ezra does not do that. But nor does he immediately go and put everybody on blast who's guilty. He doesn't call them in and make a display of them. He doesn't tear into them in the name of righteous anger and make an example of them. That's not what he does first. What does Ezra do first? He repents. He repents out of a deep lament over the destructive nature of sin amongst the people of God. Here's what's important. He repents in first-person language. Did you notice that? Verse 6, oh God, I am ashamed. And I blush to lift my face to you, oh God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. For our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Verse 10, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Ezra identifies with his people in a sin that he himself did not commit. We need to think deeply about that. He's not doing this for show. He's not trying to be dramatic and draw attention to himself and be performative. He is truly just leveled by the grief and weight of sin within his people, and he identifies with them. I think there's several reasons why he does that. Let me just name a few. Why does Ezra use first-person language here? He just got there. First, he laments the damage this will do to the name of God. Not only within the Jewish people, but also to those surrounding nations that they are called to be a witness to. When the leaders are failing like this, man, that defames the name of the Lord. Secondly, I think he laments the destructiveness this will do to families, and this has been to families. And the real pain associated with it, particularly by the women that are being put out from within Israel and replaced by the women who are in the foreign nations, and, and, and the kids who were kind of caught up in this, and the destructive just pain that is within families. Uh, the prophet Malachi, who's the last prophet in the Old Testament, um, he came to Jerusalem either just before or just after Ezra arrived. And he references in chapter 2 by saying that men were abandoning their wives from Israel and trading them for foreign wives. Think about the pain. The broken legacies. But you know what? Even aside from that, you know why I think Ezra responded first by personally repenting? Ezra knows his own heart. Ezra knows he's a sinner himself, that he struggles against his own sin, that even things maybe he hasn't acted on or acted on publicly, he knows how, how fickle his own heart can be. And so when he hears of other people's sins, he first doesn't go, oh man, how awful they would do to do that. They would be, how, how could they ever? But first he laments and he recognizes and identifies with the fact that we are so weak in our own strength. We can be given all the uh, advantages to obey God's word and still come up short. 
the famous hymn, Come Thou Found, and the line says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It doesn't make sense, but I feel it. And he grieves. And so let's all take careful note of his example. Ezra did not hear and learn of another person's sin and immediately go, it's not my problem. I didn't do that. I don't need to be made feel guilty about other people's sin. That didn't happen on my watch. He personally portrays a posture of lament related to Israel's sin. Notice, both of old, he brings that sin up again. Generations gone by of his ancestors, whom he's never met, which drove them into exile in the first place, and then the sin now of his contemporaries. It's called corporate repentance identifying with sin of those who profess to be God's people, even when you did not personally commit that sin. Because of how grieved he was at those who do profess the same God he does and how much damage they're doing to the name of God and to the witness to those who are supposed to be looking upon them and then especially to those who were oppressed by that very sin. We should take time to think deeply about that. And defend against the temptation to say when we hear things in our lives or our church or our world and go, I didn't do that. Ezra repents of Israel's sin. Let's keep going. We're going to jump to chapter 10 now and read verses 1 through 5. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have made foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all, those, all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took an oath. Number three, Ezra leads Israel in repentance. So he goes from repenting of Israel's sin to now leading Israel in repentance. In that his own repentance was seen by others. And remember, he wasn't doing it performatively. He wasn't putting on a show. But their witness to his repentance as the leader leads them to offer their own. Now, I do imagine if they chose not to repent, that Ezra would have called them to that. But you notice he didn't need to do it. The Spirit was convicting them, leading them to repent themselves, and with no strings attached. Do you want to see what repentance looks like with no strings attached? It's, it's right there in Ezra 10. Quote, We have broken faith with our God, and we have married foreign women from the peoples of the lands. There's no, yeah, we did this, but here's why I had to do it. There's no, yeah, but I mean, my wife wasn't doing this. There's no, well, I was hoping that I would evangelize the nations by marrying their wives. But yeah, I get it was wrong. It's not repentance. He says, we sinned. We broke faith with our God. No disclaimers. Brothers and sisters, one of the things I want to draw attention from this strange ending that is a gift for us, is the freedom of repentance. 
for the people of God, repentance is a good word. It's a good word. We repent to God first, and those we've sinned against second. No disclaimers. And in this way, repentance truly is a word of freedom. Repentance is a release from the shackles that threaten to bind us. And, that, and there is no more miserable person in the world than a Christian who is living in unrepentant sin. Because the Spirit is convicting them of that person, of walking out of step with the gospel. And the Spirit's also keeping them from enjoying the sin that they're hiding. It's the most miserable person in the world. And so when in the context of, of, of a sermon or, or a fellow believer in a specific situation um, approaches you in love and calls you to repentance, I, that's never easy at first. That always hurts. But it is done in love when it's done the right way. Because our repentance says more about God and his grace than it does about us and our sin. Repentance says more about God and his grace more than it says anything about us and our sin. And bringing that sin to light, repenting that we have broken faith with our God, it releases us from the shame that the enemy wants us pinned under because our God is faithful and just to forgive. There are countless examples of people who I've been walking with who have said, man, that repentance was hard It's the hardest thing I've had to do, but I felt an immediate sense of relief afterward. That that the weight was off of just trying to hide it. And the sense of relief when we repent. And it doesn't mean there's no consequences to our sin in this world. There is, which we're going to get to here in a moment. But it does mean that we are free in Christ to be fully restored. And from here, Ezra is going to provide instruction for next steps. So let's read now verses 10 to 13 of chapter 10. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said, but the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. True repentance is both word and action. True repentance is confessing of sin, but then turning from that sin. In this case, for Israel, it was a separation from their foreign wives. Now, I have to be quick here, but I said earlier, I'm not going to skirt around it. I don't want to skip over it. A question emerges from this text when you compare it to the whole of Scripture. Why are they called to separate from their wives here, but in the New Testament, when Paul and Peter address those in the church with non-believing spouses, they instruct them to stay in their marriage? To, to stay and do their best to keep the marriage together, to win their spouse to faith by living graciously with them and praying for them. Why is the call different then? The text here does not explicitly say why, 
But it does indicate that the intermarriages in Israel were leading to detestable practices that came as a result of worshiping the foreign gods. Hang with me. So I can't go there, but in Psalm 106, it details what detestable worship practices of the foreign nations around them were, which included child sacrifice. Also, in the Old Covenant, the command did have a different purpose, being that Israel was the family line that the Messiah would come. And intermarriage would lead to the destruction of that family line, as it almost did when the nation was previously exiled. The nation of Israel and Jerusalem now is 10% of what it was back before exile. And now, just with this remnant of believers back in Jerusalem, it was vital that they took this action to completely separate themselves from those marriages. With that said, I want to offer a word to those who are currently married to a non-believer. In line with God's word from 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter, the call is to stay if you can. Stay in the marriage. Do your best. Live graciously with a non-believing spouse unless, hear me closely, unless staying in that marriage forces you to be a victim to grievous sin, as in the case of abuse, or to be complicit in sin yourself. If there is practices in that marriage, the expectation on you is to be complicit in sin that would go against God's word. You are not called to stay if you are forced to choose between honoring your spouse and being obedient to God's word. And by the way, that's also two believers who are married to another professing believer. And hopefully in that case, that if you were members of a local church, that the elders would be able to step into that because there's a difference between a professing believer and a non-believer in a marriage. But encourage you to stay rooted in a faith community. Allow your church family to rally around you, to encourage you, to pray for you both, to walk with you through it all. That God's grace will be sufficient for you. And you can trust it to him. All right, we got one more point here. As we end this book, end this series, number four. Ezra points Israel toward hope. Ezra points Israel toward hope. The rest of chapter 10, which we won't go and list their names because I can't pronounce about 80% of them. But there are 110, if I counted right, names listed at the end of chapter 10. Starting with the leaders and the priests, holding them to account. And then that final verse again. All these men had married foreign women. And some of the women had even borne children. End of Ezra. And as I said in the introduction, these final chapters are a lot. I even now feel like I just went through them too fast. There's a lot of weight to them. There's a burden here that maybe at times perhaps makes you want to scream, how could we end like this? But this ending is kind of a snapshot to the whole story of Israel in the Old Testament. Even after a second chance, third chance, fourth chance, fifth chance. This is a story of a faithful God who covenants with a faithless people. So how is there any hope? Well, just as a small candle makes a big difference in a dark room, 
so too there have been small phrases throughout these chapters that shine through and spark hope. I wonder if you noticed them. But back in the beginning of chapter 9, in the first couple of verses, when the leaders first brought this news to Ezra, they said in verse 2 that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. That phrase, holy race, is literally translated holy seed. The seed is a theme traced all throughout the Old Testament that began way back in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. When God pronounced judgment and curse on the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the promise of that seed is not contingent upon a faithless people. It is held sure by a faithful God. A little candle in a dark room makes a big difference. And then look at uh, chapter 9, verse 8. Your Bible's still open. In the midst of Ezra's confession and identifying with the sins of Israel, he says, But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes. Little candle in a dark room. And then chapter 10, verse 2 again, the people following Ezra's leadership and example say, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Little candle in the dark room. The end of Ezra affirms that the true promised land is not a sketch of geography in the Middle East, but it is the garden city of God. The true feeling of home that we all have but can't always articulate, that true desire to be really secure and at rest is not found in a refinished temple. It's not found in a literal city on a hill in Jerusalem. It's not found in a way of life. It's not found in living your own truth. It's not found on relying on your own ability to obey the truth. The only feeling and true feeling of home in this world is found in a person. And from here at the end of Ezra, there will be no more prophets sent to Israel. No more kings reigning within Israel for the next 400 years. Until one day, an angel would appear to a teenage girl in Luke chapter 1 to tell her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus will be the greater Ezra who was sent by his father in his perfect timing to bring spiritual renewal not only to the people of Israel but for the whole world. Jesus will be the greater Ezra who in response to our sin does not gloss over it nor does he condemn it but he identifies with our sin even though he himself has never sinned by dying on a cross. Jesus will be the greater Ezra, who by his death and resurrection will lead his people to repentance, upon which they will experience true freedom. And Jesus will be the greater Ezra, who will point his people to a renewed hope as they live in this world as elect exiles, to worship him, 
to walk in holiness, to be a witness to the nations, and to long for our true home in the new heavens and the new earth. Ezra, indeed, has a strange ending. An ending that leaves us wanting more. And that's the whole point. It leaves us wanting and searching on a way that leads to the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's fitting that Advent begins next week. For the ending of Ezra shouts, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your word. Father, at times it cuts so deep, it convicts so profoundly, and yet, Lord, we are so grateful that in the midst of that conviction, you do not leave us alone, but you show us your grace, that there's more grace and mercy in you than there is sin in us, and Lord, we can be free to repent, and then in that freedom, live lives that draw people to your name, that glorify your name, Lord, we will do it imperfectly, And so, Father, give us the courage to repent when we do sin. Because, Lord, in that repentance, we show where our true salvation lies, not in ourselves, but in your Son, Jesus. Lord, let us not only live in that truth, but long for the day where you will erase every sin, where you will dry every tear, and we will live in eternal communion with you and your people. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's your name we pray. Amen. We stand. As we sing in response and prepare for the Lord's Supper.